Okay, so you'll, you'll notice that I'm solo uh, once more, so I'm, I'm sort of filling in these uh, couple of leaner weeks uh, uh, while we have the bookends of, of when many were on spring break. Uh, George and Wendy are out of town. Uh, I do expect George to be back with us uh, next week, which will be a good thing. I, in his absence, am even going to attempt some scriptural analysis, and I'm going to ask George to listen to today's recording, and he can come and he can undo or correct uh, next week anything that I might say that's uh, a misapplication. We have put this slide up several times this, uh, this semester uh, as far as takeaways, and I want you to know we are eventually going to move off of the first one. In fact, very soon, very soon, uh, maybe as early as next week, uh, we're going to talk about this idea of how sometimes when we're bothered by things in our church family, it's because our church of origin rules are being violated, uh, even if that's not necessarily a violation of someone else's church of origin rules and kind of how we think about that and, and, and process that. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, coming back to this first takeaway, what rules can you identify from your church experience? If they're constructive, how do you keep them? If they're destructive, how do you revise them or replace them? Uh, before we leave that, I want to talk about something today that we've, we've made reference to, we've touched on here and there, uh, and that is the process of change. You know, just in general, how do we think about change? If we've got rules that we're following that we need to change, if we've got patterns uh, that we need to change. I want us to think a little bit about the process of change. George took us to, among other places, in Galatians a few weeks ago. He took us uh, here to Galatians 4, uh, where Paul says this, We were once like children, slaves to the useless rules of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, lived under the law. God did this so he could buy freedom for those who were under the law and so we could become his children. So uh, 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 this is a, a high, highly valued act of God, right? Since you are God's children, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts and the spirit cries out, Father. Now you are not a slave, you are God's child. And God will give you the blessing he promised because you are his child. In the past, you did not know God. You were slaves to gods that were not real, but now you know the true God. Really, it is God who knows you. And then Paul poses this question about change and our resistance to it. So why do you turn back to those weak and useless rules you followed before. Do you want to be slaves to those things again? Why do you turn back? And, and if, you, if you're following along in Scripture, you might expect that he would then answer this question in the next line. He does not. He, he does not immediately say, well, I'll tell you why you turn back. 
the, the question just sort of hangs out there. And, and it, it's really a, a kind of a, almost an umbrella over the book of, of Galatians. Why, why do you turn back to those old rules that are, that are no longer serving you, that have no value, right? They're not healthy. They're not of Jesus. And yet, you return to those things. I'm going to break a rule right now that I grew up with. I grew up in a church with a preacher who um, <clears throat> referred to class Sunday school class discussions as a swapping of ignorance. <laughs> now, there, there's a... There's a not so covert message in that, right? Which is, a, a, you know, teachers have knowledge and authority, right? And listeners should be listeners, right? Uh, which uh, <clears throat> I find sort of flies in the face of my actual experience as a teacher, which is often we discover some of the best knowledge together collaboratively. So let me ask you, and I, and I see we already have uh, one hand up. Why, why do you think this is the case? Well, I was yeah. going to ask a more very simple theological question okay. to warm you up. Yeah. Is Paul talking to um, the ex-Jewish uh, people in the church or, or the people who are pagans? I'm assuming the latter. Well, I, I, I think that there are versions of weak and useless rules for both groups. Right now, what's happening in Galatia, as I understand it, is that there's this sort of holding up of these Jewish rules and customs as necessary for salvation. So, yeah, Jesus is the door, but Moses is the screen door, and you still need to walk through both of them. You know what I'm saying? So, that, I think that's the overall context. But I would think people who come from a Gentile background or no no religious background whatsoever that. It's a, it may be different, weak, and useless rules, but we all have yeah. some version of them, right? So thoughts about why we, not just the Galatians specific in their context, but humans in general. Okay. Then I'll, then yeah. I'll yeah, go ahead. The world's complicated. Everybody comes up with rules to deal with how to deal with the situation, and they work for most of the time until they don't, but mm -hmm. you get stuck in that mode. I see it with myself until someone finally says, why are you doing it that way? Yeah. Well, because, you know, when you get into that way, yeah. it's just normal momentum. Momentum, uh, inertia. There's something you said that, that strikes a chord in me. A lot of times they work, you know, they, they function in some way. At least they work until they don't, right? Yeah. Well, I'll follow up on yeah. that because... Sometimes what works until it doesn't yes. is the new stuff. Okay, okay. And, yeah. we, and, and I'll, okay. I'll apply this not so much to church of origin, but right. family of okay. origin. As, as, a, as a parent, when I, when I was most likely to show the things that I like least about my parents and the way that they were parents uh -huh. was when the stuff that I thought I knew that I thought was better mm. quit working. 
and if I ran out of ideas and just didn't know what to do, I remembered they did that, and it was not necessarily the best option, but it was the one most firmly planted in my brain, and so, and that's when it becomes because I said so, or (laughs) or or whatever, whatever the bad thing that your parents did to you comes out when all of your ideas quit working. That that uh, that rings true for me, and uh, this this will be later in the semester. We'll talk more in depth about this. But as a general rule, when the stress gets high enough in life, our tendency is to do whatever we learned to do to survive, right? So it may not be optimal or most functional, but it worked to survive, and we find ourselves returning to it. Yeah. I also think that as human beings, we like to belong to a group, and sure. we want our group to be exclusive, even though we don't think we do. Huh. And I think that groups come up with rules to yeah. keep others out, yeah. and they're afraid that if we don't have rules, then anybody can just come in. And we don't <laughs> right. want that, but right. we should. That, but that's exact. what Jesus was saying was, you know, everybody's included. Yeah. But that's kind of counter, as a lot of his count things were countercultural. Yes, absolutely. That's a countercultural thing because, you know, schools have, everybody, everyone has those. Yeah. And churches have them. And I think people like to be in a, quote, club. And I don't mean it like club, club. You know what I'm saying? I get it. They like yeah. to be. To belong. To belong. Yeah. And if everybody can sure. come in, there's nothing special about your group. At, uh, to, to Which quote, I don't think that that's true, but I think in our hearts we right. don't think. Yeah. To quote the Incredibles, if everyone's special, then no one is. That you know, <laughs> and that there is this kind of sense of of value in being in this exclusive group. Yes. Yeah. So. I think from time to time, I have learned that the people who maybe Say say that last part one more time. That rules weren't as important as people are. Is that what you said, Sam? And you wanted to know the people. Yeah, yeah. That's. This is important. Yes, this is important. That that we we are gracious toward and we we see the value in those who may follow rules that we have decided are unnecessary. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. That's Paul one hand. Yeah. Um, it's hard to follow that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Sure. You know, I grew up in a family with no rules, and I created rules for myself. Okay, okay, that good. That were not yes. healthy or functional. Yes. But yes. they put boundaries. You know what I mean? They yes. Yes. And I think when you step out and you let go of rules that aren't working, you then have no you have to figure out what your new rules are. Right, right. And 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 to, to if you're in a system that lacks any sort of boundaries or anchor points or structure, that sense of chaos is a that's that's very unsafe. Yeah, absolutely. And you you want to bring a sense of safety to that. Some rules out of context, where they might maybe they may. You know, we talked last week about uh, can, uh, many of you were, were out, and if you want to go back and listen to that recording on the website, we talked about contextualizing the understanding the rules better by contextualizing the rule makers, right? What was their context, and some rules that may have worked in one context, you grow into a different context where they no longer seem to fit, but it's scary to leave them still. Yes, thank you. So if you have a, a body of knowledge that you have yeah. all your life and you think it's going to be permanent, like marriage and family therapy, okay. just, just because you have to stand up here, right. to, be, to pick your topic, yeah, to sure. pick your field. Yeah. And then one day something happens that says, you know what, that entire field is null and void. Yeah. I, I live in fear of that on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, pick your profession. Pick, you know, so, but if, if that's your experience, if you've, said, if you've invested all this time yes. and energy yes. and knowledge, it's been such a big part of your life, and then suddenly, out of the clear blue, comes, oh, that's nullified. Yeah. Now, in the least, yeah. it feels that way. Right. And so right. that's... That affects people on another level. Mm -hmm. You might be able to look at it and say, well, I see the situation has changed, but internally you want to kind of give up that huge part of your identity and mm. what you've invested in. And people aren't very easily going to do that. Right, right. If for no other reason, for that reason. And that the idea of identity, it, there's several important things you said, but that finding my identity in in this uh, way of being or way of living or approach uh, seems like a key idea, absolutely. So a couple more here and then we'll come back. Um, I was just thinking about how like, when I learned as a kid, like, uh, the first thoughts of like, what heaven is and yeah. how it was infinite and big, yeah. I felt actually like, I'm not sure I want to go there, that sounds really scary. Right, um, right. And also thinking about, I just get my kids to Just start sinning 
which Paul addresses in another one of his letters, right? Do we just keep on sinning so that grace may increase? Like they, they just get so unmoored, so untethered from all this that they that things get out of control. Yeah. Now, I appreciate you sharing that about kind of that fear of the space of heaven. I'll confess, as a kid, I didn't want to go to heaven, but it was because I was told it was one long church service. <laughs> <laughs> From scratch, every decision from scratch every time. That does sound exhausting. I didn't turn to the left. Let me get one more here on the left side. Yeah. Sure, that's a great reference. I actually thought of the same thing. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. But, yeah. Um, looking at the passage just as it stands alone, yeah. words like slave, lack of freedom, mm. like, well, it's a no-brainer. These people should clearly like to mm. the new situation rather than the old. But right. What's missing is the inherent difficulty of going from a simple rules-based system that you follow along how actually part of it is to adopt a much, much more mature where you have to make yes. some, you have to buy in and make some moral, ethical, hard decisions on your own to do these things. So really. change, change from one system to another is really, really hard. And even though it's clearly better, sometimes it's easier to just fall back on what you're used to. I, I, I would agree. And, and what you're describing, actually, that's a nice segue. What you're describing is what, in, in my field and in many fields, actually, I mean, th this is true in the social sciences, it's true in biology. Uh, th this idea of homeostasis, right, which is that uh, there's this, uh, in, in any system, we're trying to remain in equilibrium, right, and systems tend to resist change, and, and most of you can think of examples of that, you know, like what, if the system is a corporation, some of you that work in the corporate world, you, you can think about how difficult sometimes it can be to, to institute a change. Certainly, universities are slow to change. I, I've worked in, in universities for um, uh, mo most of my career uh, and about 25 years or so, and uh, there, there, there is a resistance to change in, uh, in churches, certainly, in families, even on an individual level, right? Um, our, our patterns resist change. That, 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 that there's something um, inherent to us uh, uh, that, that we are often resistant to change, even when on some level we want it. And th this is in many ways a good thing, right? That, that we're not so prone to change that life is chaotic, right? It functions on some level, this resistance to change that many of us experience. It has some really uh, positive ways in which it functions, but it, it really presents a challenge when our patterns need to change, but we resist. Yes? It's absolutely possible, right? That, 
at least this is familiar. It may not be great, but it's familiar. Yeah, yeah, that, that fear can be, can be very strong. Absolutely. So as a result of this, sometimes we might settle for what has been described by some as first order change. There, there's, if, if uh, I want to use these concepts if you're unfamiliar with them to, to kind of contrast a, a first order level change with a second order level change. And first order change, and this, is, this, this sounds confusing, but, but go with me for just a second. The goal of first order change is to keep things as much the same as possible, which may, again, sound confusing because, well, that doesn't sound like change at all, right? The goal is to, to keep things as much the same as possible. Let, let's change sort of the minimum that we absolutely have to and, and not disrupt more than is, is necessary here. And you see this in therapy uh, frequently. This uh, tendency to be willing to settle for a first order type of change, a, a superficial type of change. So, for example, uh, there's a married couple. One uh, member of that couple is uncomfortable with the amount that the other person in the relationship drink. And so they say, you, I, I, I can't put up with your drinking like this anymore. If you don't make a change, I'm out of here. Okay? Now, again, the goal of first order change is to keep things as much the same as possible. So this person... Uh, who's been given this ultimatum has a choice, right? They, they, let's assume they want to stay in relationship with their partner. Okay, let's assume that's the case, that they want to stay in relationship. So they want to keep the relationship intact. They want it to be the same. But they also don't really want to fully give up their drinking drink. So how could they engage in first order change? What could they do to change kind of as little as possible in order to keep things as much the same as they can? What might they do? Get better at hiding it, okay? Getting better at hiding things is a great example of first order change. Good. Cut the drinks. Cut them down. Yeah. Like add a little coke. Add a little. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. So it's not. Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm not as much. Yeah. Instead right? of 150 proof, maybe it's 120. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Math. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Good. Okay. Yeah. I'm changing my drink of choice to something that's not doesn't uh, seem as threatening to my partner, more acceptable to them. Okay. I mean, there's a lot of different, you, you get what I'm saying. There, there, there are ways in which a person could change enough 
to try to keep things as much the same as possible without having to really confront, right, on any sort of radical level, this behavior that they're engaging in that is very upsetting and problematic to, to their partner. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll tell this. Some, some people are, are such masters at first order change. Uh, this was over two decades ago and in a different uh, town. I, I was doing community mental health and um, I had a client who was uncomfortable. I didn't see the couple, I just saw the, the wife and she was uncomfortable with the amount her husband would drink. Uh, but he was uncomfortable with her doing things that asserted independence. Like he, he preferred she didn't have a job or he preferred that she didn't drive, those kinds of things. Uh, and uh, anytime she would bring up one of those things that he didn't care for, he would talk about how thirsty he was getting. That, that's, that's masterful, right? right? Uh, because he knew that the thing that bothered her more than anything else was for him to go out, you know, bring home a 12-pack, polish it off, right? That was the last thing she wanted, right? And so just sort of keeping the threat out there uh, you know, sometimes more covertly, sometimes more overtly, sort of kept her in line. So, you know, he's, he's changing, uh, he's not drinking as much in front of her as he once did, but there's, we would say that whatever was happening there certainly wasn't second order change, because second order change is real attitudinal change. Right, it's it's this change at a level. Some you know, you know the phrase a change of heart, right? Uh, that we use. Well, she had a change of heart. He had a change of heart. That's that's what second order change is, right? It's a real change of heart. I I have come to see some sort of problem with my behavior, and my response to that is to really pursue something significantly different. But for all the reasons that all of you have already said, second order change, a change of heart, is much harder to come by. And sometimes, for, you know, engaging in first order change actually protects us from having to do this. Right? It keeps us from having to be, to really face the difficult work of doing second order change, a change of heart. Now, in, in my experience, second order change requires, sorry, my uh, computer is trying to get me to update. No. <laughs> It wants me to do some second order change here on the, uh, I'm just going to do first order change and click cancel. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll get to that later. Yeah, delay. Yeah, delay it. In my experience, a necessary ingredient to second order change, or if not necessary, a very helpful, often important ingredient is insight. Right? 
it, it takes some level of insight into what I'm doing, into my patterns, to be, in order to be willing to confront what it would take to change them, I have to have a, an awareness, an understanding, a level of insight. And I know that there are, there are people, Terry and I feel, that would disagree with me. That, ins that you know, insight's not that important as long as you go and you do something differently. I, I just see so much evidence in my experience that suggests that this typically requires some understanding, some insight. And I think there's a really interesting example of this uh, in <coughs> Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is that uh, chapter where there's three stories of lost things. Uh, Luke 15 starts with a lost coin. Run all around the house, persistent until I find it. You know, I, I do what it takes to find the coin. I eventually find it. I celebrate. I found my coin. Following that is a lost sheep, you know. The shepherd that's willing to leave the, the sheep who are, who are safe and go after and seek and find that one that's missing. And then the third uh, story in Luke 15, probably the most well-known, is the lost son, or more commonly referred to growing up in church as the prodigal son. And you remember the prodigal son... Um, Depending on what version of the Bible you were raised on, uh, he went to the far country and he squandered his wealth and riches on anybody riotous living. That's how I learned. It. Yeah, he he squandered it on on riotous living. Um, and and by the way. I, I, this is not necessarily the point that I'm moving toward here, but just as an aside, it is interesting how the lost thing is treated differently in the first two stories than in the third, right? Uh, when it's a coin, it's on me to look and look and look and look and look until it's found. When it's a sheep, it's on me to look and look and look and look until it's found. The father doesn't do that with the boy, right? This, this boy is sort of left to himself to come to a place of willingness to change. The father is available, is there to receive. But I guess there's some difference in a human and livestock and, and coins, I guess. But for whatever reason, there's not this seeking of the son in the same pattern that the coin and the sheep are sought. And so he finds himself after the far country and after the riotous living. You know the story, right? He finds himself uh, feeding these pigs. And uh, scripture says, when he came to himself, insight, right? a deep, a newer deeper, more clear understanding of his choices and of his situation. When he came to himself, he said, 
How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? But I will perish with hunger. So he considers a new way of being. Now, you want to talk about breaking rules. It, it, it is far outside of this guy's normal pattern to even consider going and presenting himself in his father's home as a servant. We get the sense earlier in the story that he would have seen himself as better than, different than, probably even better than these folk. And yet he's had such a radical moment of insight that he's, he's considering a whole new set of rules, a whole new pattern. I'm going to go to my father and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to own up. I'm going to be accountable. I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That, that is a, a, a significant shift in worldview for this young man. And he arose and he came to his father. And of course, uh, that, that moment in that parable that we all love, while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. To have insight uh, that, that to have the level of insight that brings you to this kind of second order change sounds a lot like growing in differentiation, which we talked about on the first day of, of class. And for those of you who weren't here, it was the idea that I, I gain a clearer sense of myself, who I am, right? What parts of me are solid, what parts of me are flexible. I become less reactive. I have a greater tolerance for things that are different from me and outside of my normal experience. And I'm willing to endure pain for growth. The, the story of the prodigal son is a story about a lot of different things with a lot of different applications. This is, I'm simply suggesting this is one of them. And I'm suggesting that having insight into our experiences and the impact of those experiences on us and how the, the past is informing the present and may continue to inform the future, that having insight into those things is a part of growing in differentiation and it's a part of embracing second order change. Right? Remember we, we shared this idea a couple of weeks ago that neither complying with rules without critical thinking nor rejecting rules out of defiance represents a differentiated stance. Okay? But with insight, this is where I think we can get. As you develop, and this is, this is just me. I'm not citing anyone here. This is my understanding as you develop greater insight into the rules of your path, you are freed up to embrace second order change by both. It's, it's, it's not, a, it's, it's not a, uh, a dichotomous thing. You can do both of these things. Both affirming those constructive rules, those healthy rules, and seeking healing 
from those undesirable or destructive rules. I'm curious. We've got a lot of wisdom in this group, a lot of life experience, and a few minutes. Yes? Quick thing. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. It occurs to me, where does empathy fit in here? Does empathy often precede insight, or is it a separate process regarding how we see someone else rather than how we have it developed inside ourselves? I see them as um, co co-occurring. Uh, you know, we, it, we, we talked about empathy last week to some degree, contextualizing the rules and in particular the rule makers. I think the more insight I develop, the more capacity for empathy I have. Do you see it differently? That's what I'm thinking about. Okay. I can also imagine yeah. if I have more empathy yeah. for people who are different and have different rules yeah. from that, I might develop some insight. It may be kind of a, I'm, I'm, an I'm order of operations right. thing yeah. where equifinality, whether we start at empathy or insight, we end up at the same place, yeah. perhaps. Yeah. But in, in your experience, right? Uh, th this class is, has been focused on gaining greater insight, being more thoughtful, being more deliberate about sort of thinking about the rules we've experienced. Um, I'm curious, best practices? Any ways that, that any of you in here have had success in developing greater insight? Okay, great, great. It's a shifting of perspective. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, and that, 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 that could, I guess, happen by accident. But it, it is also something we could be very intentional about, right? Is seeking out opportunities to be with people who've had different experiences than us. And being open to their experience. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, first of all, so when you talk about insight, yeah. I, I'm a little resistant to that. Yes. Uh, and I think the prodigal is a great story that sort of illustrates. Because I think the primary addiction in our culture is to figuring it out. Okay. Okay. Our brains, our brains. And the reality is, most of us come to change through finding the end of ourselves. Yeah, right, right. He came to himself. Right. Yes. Yeah. So I think that's where I was fighting the insight. Okay. You know, if this person's going to go to figure it out on their own, the reality is how he got to the end of himself and he's mm. finally open to the truth. Yes, okay. I wonder if we're saying a similar thing in different ways because I, I certainly don't disagree with what you're well, saying. And, and I, yeah. I'm coming around with the way you see it too. Yeah, yeah. You did have to be open to the insight at some point. At so some point. Everybody's bottom is different. Yeah. Different, that the end of myself, I, this isn't working. This isn't working, right? Which probably opens me to things I wouldn't previously have considered. Yeah. Other thoughts? Yeah. Um, 
I'm a, I'm a logical person, so I, I think this helps me. Yes. I ask myself, okay, why? Why is that? We talk about rules, right? And to get greater insight, why is it that way? Well, yeah. And then you ask why again. Well, why is that? If you ask why three or four times, mm, uh -huh. you end up getting off into a root kind of cause of stuff. And we okay. use this in business all the time. Ask why five times, and you'll yeah. figure it out. Yeah. Um, so that that's how I. My, I, 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 my favorite question, which I think is very similar, is help me understand, right? Yeah. And it's a great question to ask of people, but it's also a great question to ask of sort of myself and my own experience, right? Help me understand, yeah. Um, one of the best things that I read, I, I read something once they were talking about the difference between being right and wrong. Mm. And that you know, we like to feel like we are right. Sure. You know. Um, sure. Because if we knew that we were wrong about something, we would change how we felt so that we would be right again. Yes. And uh, and, and so the, the, this writer pointed out, so, you know, sometimes you will hear people say, "I was wrong," but you never hear anybody say, "I am mm. wrong." Mm -hmm. yeah. And the interesting part of that is because. Feeling, and, and, and one of the questions they asked was, what, is, what does it feel like to be wrong? Mm -hmm. And they came to the conclusion that being wrong feels exactly like being right. <laughs> because you only know that experience of having been wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. you know what it's like that, yeah. to, to have been wrong, because yeah. that feels awful. Yeah. Being wrong feels great because yeah. it feels like being right. Yeah. And so best thing I ever did was learn how to easily say in every circumstance, I am wrong. So, Brian, for people who want to think about that more, is your class still up on the <laughs> website? I have no idea. Brian, you, you, that was a, what was the name of the series you taught? I think it was just Being Wrong. Being Wrong. <laughs> I thought it was something like the spiritual discipline of being wrong. Uh, oh, um, but anyway, I don't remember. Uh, a the, lot of our classes are cataloged there on the website, and it was just an excellent series where you really unpacked that well. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever gets you there, right? Yeah. Um, I, I see a couple other hands, but I do want to be mindful of our time. I think we've gone a couple minutes over. Uh, thank you so much for not swapping ignorances this morning, but, but really, uh, I, this is such a collaborative, constructive process, uh, and, and I appreciate your part in that. 
Uh, we, will, we will dismiss for today and see you back here next Sunday. Thank you.